Okay, the story is told of the, uh, the new pastor who was visiting the homes of his parishioners. And at one house, it seemed obvious to him as he was knocking on the door that someone was home. There was noise, there was commotion in the background, but for some reason, whoever was home wasn't coming to the door. And so he thought he'd have a little bit of fun with them and took out his uh, church business card with his name on it. And he wrote on the back of the, uh, the card, he wrote Revelation 3.20, and he stuck it in the door. And uh, a couple of days went by, and when the offering was processed that following Sunday, he found that his card had been returned in the offering, and added to his card was a cryptic message that said Genesis 3.10. And so he reached for his Bible to check out the verse, and he broke out into laughter, because Revelation 3.20 began with, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Genesis 3.10 reads, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, for I was naked. (laughs) So, you know, the, the, the point is, in a humorous way, Uh, It illustrates the importance of knowing the Bible. And for those who have not been born again, the Bible is confusing. And without God's help, it's absolutely impossible to understand. I can clearly recall a time in my life when I believed the Bible to be nothing more than a collection of stories on the same level as fairy tales with no divine authority. You know, then the day came when I recognized my sinfulness that I felt short of God's standard, which was perfection, and I realized that I had been disobedient to his laws and uh, knew that I must throw myself upon his mercy for forgiveness and came to the point where I threw myself upon the mercy of God, believing what he says, that that, uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place. He rose again from the dead, and as I trusted in him by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, the Bible says that I was a child of God to those who believe in his name. I was born again by, by the act of God, by a will of God, not by my own effort, not by any works on my part. And then at that particular point in time, as a result, the Bible came alive to me. And I understood through the Holy Spirit who indwells all of God's people uh, what was previously a mystery to me that the Bible is indeed the very word of God in written form. And today, as we uh, continue our study through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Christ, we come to a passage that shows us clearly what it means when we hear or read the signs that say, Jesus saves. And in Luke chapter 23, turn with me as we read this particular account, starting with verse 26. Um, I can recall several years ago, as you're turning to this passage, before I trusted that Jesus died for my sins, I remember, I remember seeing a sign at a church, and out in front of the church it said, Jesus saves. And I recall very vividly driving by there thinking, what, what does that mean? Jesus saves from what? And, that having, and having absolutely no understanding whatsoever as far as, well, what does he save us from? And in Luke chapter 23, as we examine this passage and some parallel accounts in the other Gospels, there's going to be seven observations that are worth noting as they relate to Jesus, how he saves, and specifically as they relate to the crucifixion. Starting with verse 26, we read these words. And when they led him, speaking of Jesus, away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there were following him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? And two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. 
And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this one is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In this passage, there are seven observations. The first one I call to your attention is the fact that we're immediately told of this gentleman by the name of Simon of a country called Cyrena in verse 26. And Simon was enlisted or basically enthrusted into service as far as carrying the crossbeam of Jesus. And in verse 26, we're told that they laid hold of him and uh, Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. We're immediately introduced to this man, Cyrene, uh, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a country that is in modern-day uh, northern Africa or Libya. It was about 800 miles from Jerusalem. So it was the, the, uh, the, the, the desire of every Jew at some point or another to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And if you can imagine, this may have been this guy's first opportunity to be there. And as he's coming in from out in the countryside because there's not enough uh, places to stay within the city, uh, many of those pilgrims would stay outside in the country, and then they would come into the city, into the temple to celebrate the Passover. And as he was coming in, here is Jesus and these two criminals that are being led with him out of the city. Now, the soldiers, seeing what was going on with Jesus, were concerned that Jesus wasn't going to make it to be crucified. And it's a wonderful uh, example of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Because it was God's, it obviously it was God's predetermined plan, and by the foreknowledge of God, we know that Jesus would suffer on the cross, that he would die upon the cross for the sins of the world, and he wasn't going to die before he got there, but the soldiers didn't know any better by looking at him and said, you know what, we need to get this guy some help because he may not make it to be crucified. And so they grabbed this guy, and here is Simon of Cyrene on what was perhaps the most exciting day or weekend of his life. And it was just, this bubble was burst when it came to the fact that, you know what, what is going on here? And I want all of us to understand there is no such thing as a coincidence in God's providence. Everything has a divine appointment. I don't know how many times in life I have run into somebody or called somebody or contacted somebody that God has put on my heart and I've heard him say, you know what, you're not going to believe this, but you, know, you, you, you called it at a, at a very critical time in my life or you ran into me at a critical point in my life. And it's like, you know what, that's God because it's a divine appointment. And here Simon of Cyrene is about to be engaged in a divine appointment. But you've got to understand from a human perspective, it wouldn't surprise me that he was very disappointed in what was about to take place. And so to give you a little bit of background, it was part of the humiliation of a prisoner that he carry his own cross or crossbeam to the place of execution. So when Jesus left Pilate's hall, he was carrying the crossbeam, which weighed about 100 pounds, and apparently Jesus was unable to go on, and that's why they enlisted Simon. And it's not hard to understand why. You know, if you think about it, he had been up all night. He had been beaten beyond recognition by the guards. He was crowned with crowns of thorns. He was sent back and forth from Herod to Pilate. He was scourged. And if you read anything at all about what scourging entailed, you recognize that scourging in and of itself was enough to kill a man. And this flagellum that they used consisted of uh, thongs that were plated with pieces of bone and lead. Eusebius who tells of martyrs, and he says this about being beat with a flagellum. They were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries. 
so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails, which is their guts, and organs were exposed to sight. So can you imagine as Jesus is walking down the road and stumbling and falling, those who are looking at him are looking at his back and they're seeing it basically, they're seeing all his arteries and his veins and even internal organs that are, that are showing through. And it's just a gruesome picture of what price Jesus paid so that you and I who trust in him would not be held accountable for our sins. The American uh, Journal of American uh, Medical Association uh, recreated the horror of crucifixion with this medical review. And they said, it, and it had complete with anatomical illustrations. It says, the authors detailed the pain of the flagellum as it tore into Christ's skeletal muscles. The pain produced by the weight of the body hanging from spikes that penetrated the medial nerves and tore at the tarsals. The gruesome respiratory agony, the cramping, the ensuing pleural effusions, concluding that death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating, literally meaning out of the cross. You know, when I read that account, I went, hey, I know that word, pleural effusions. I've read it on most of my CT scans. And so I'm going, hey, that's, it's something new to me. And, and, it, and it helps me for the first time in my life as a believer to have a better grasp or depth of understanding of how agonizing Jesus' death was upon the cross. Because as he was on the cross, he would force himself up to breathe. And what a pleural effusion is, it's a pocket of, of fluid. And that's why when they stabbed Jesus later with a spear, and out came fluid, uh, water, it says water and blood, or a mixture of this fluid. Well, two weeks ago when I went into the hospital, that's what they drained out of my back or my, my lung cavity. And basically, it feels like, for those of you who have never had a pleural effusion... Um, <laughs> It feels like somebody's just standing right now, even now as I speak, standing on my chest. And it's the pressure that develops with the amount of fluid that is there. And so as as Jesus was crucified, and as he was hanging on the cross, and every time he would go to take a breath, he would force himself up. And as he did, he would force himself upon that nail through his feet to try to get up and catch a breath so that when he would speak, he would have some, some strength in order to speak. And that pleural effusion is what he was referring to. And, and I can't even begin to imagine the price that Jesus paid so that you and I would not have to be held accountable to God or face the judgment or the wrath of God for our sin. And that pleural effusion was just one small part of what Jesus did on our behalf. And I appreciate much more now what that means because none of us have ever been crucified. None of us can fully, truly appreciate and understand the price that Jesus paid. But we need to recognize that it was a gruesome price. It was a brutal death. And it was one, as we read this passage, that we'll see that was a substitutionary death, which is all the most important for us as we consider this. You know, there was also more to it than just, you know, they were afraid Jesus was going to die, you know, and so they enlisted Simon to carry the the crossbeam. The other reality of it is, is that, you know, the reason that the the convicted person carried their crossbeam is because they were guilty. And when I read this, I kind of got, you know, like those, you know, those goosebumps that you get in the back of your neck when you read something in the Bible and you come to, come to realize, you know, how, how special this is. Well, see, God, the Father, didn't have Jesus carry the crossbeam because Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. See, we've already learned that. Pilate said, in this man I find no guilt. Herod, as wicked and evil as Herod was, and his family said, you know what, I can't find any guilt in this man. This man has done nothing wrong. And so God was saying to you and me that, you know what, Simon of Cyrene is going to carry the crossbeam because you know why? He represents all of us. And all of mankind is guilty before God. 
None are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned our back on God, just as through um, Adam, sin came into the world, and with sin came death. You know, the bottom line is that you and I are guilty before God. And we need to come to that realization before we ever seek God's forgiveness. If we think we've done nothing wrong, then we think there's no reason to enlist the forgiveness of God. But Simon represented all of mankind because all of mankind is guilty. See, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Even Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Thousands of Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish feast, and Simon was one of them. He traveled 800 miles to celebrate Passover, and now here he was being humiliated on this most holy day. And the question that he had to ask of himself is, what would he tell his family when he got back home? You know, what looked to Simon to be an unbelievably embarrassing situation turned out to be a wonderful opportunity because it brought him close to Jesus. See, and before Simon met Jesus, he had religion and devotion. He'd come to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for his sins, but instead, he met the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He came face to face with God's sacrificial lamb. And we have good reason to believe that Simon came to trust in Christ because of this encounter, because Mark identifies Simon in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, as the father of Alexander and Rufus, two men that were greeted by Paul and were familiar to his re- uh, readers in Romans 16:13. Apparently, Simon had his, and his two sons became well-known believers who were held in honor throughout the Christian church. And so, what he came home to tell his family was, I met Jesus. I met the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Son of Man. I met him face to face, and I came to put my trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And because he came back with that wonderful message, we believe that his sons embraced Jesus as their Savior and became, you know, well-known throughout the Christian church and also very effective as far as ministry was concerned. And so what's the message to all of us today is very simple, and that's this. When you think that you are in the most humiliating or embarrassing of all situations, when you think that you're embarrassed because you're having problems in your marriage, you're having problems with your children, you're having problems with your health, you're having problems with your finance, you're having problems in these areas of life, and you are humiliated, let me just tell you something. That's the best place you can ever be. Because the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. And a broken and despised heart, God will never despise. See, pride gets in the way of us coming to faith in Jesus as our Savior. And God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's why the Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, as I was going through this, I thought about Simon and contrasted Simon of Cyrene uh, to some of the other folks that we've learned throughout our study in, in the Gospel of Luke. Think about the humility of Simon, the humility of Zacchaeus, the humility of the blind beggar, and contrast that to the pride of the religious leaders, to the rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees. Contrast their humility to the pride of the rich young ruler who Jesus said, this is all you have to do in order to be right with God. Just sell everything and come and follow me. And he said, I'm not going to do that. But see, he wasn't broken. He wasn't humble. And humility always precedes salvation. Nobody comes to God on their own terms. We come to God on his terms. 
And his terms are a broken heart, a broken spirit, one who recognizes our sinfulness and our need for God's forgiveness. We don't negotiate salvation with God. You know, God, you saved me from hell, and here's what I'll do for you. And God said, nobody's ever been saved like that. Have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. The other thing this cross-carrying represents is everything that Jesus taught his disciples. And he says that, you know what? We're to deny ourselves daily to pick up our cross and to follow him. You know, and the cross was a death sentence. Everybody knew that. You know, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes to the Galatians. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, the bottom line is that, you know, do you deny yourself daily as one of God's children? Do you pick up your cross? Uh, do you carry uh, the, the weight of discipleship? You know, or are you conformed to this world and you go with the flow or are you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you know what the will of God is? See, discipleship always carries with it a certain amount of humiliation. It always carries with it that we're never going to be in with the in crowd. It always carries with it that we're going to be, diso, you know, we're going to be obedient to God and disobedient to the, to the pressures of this world. We're going, to, you know, we're going to be going against the flow. And the bottom line is Simon of Cyrene indicates to us that, you know what, we're, we're to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Now, we can't die for our sins. Only Jesus can accomplish that on our behalf. But we're to die to self and become alive to God? Do you crucify every morning when you get up your desires, your flesh, and say, not my will, nevertheless, God, but yours be done? See, Simon carried the cross because he was, like us, guilty of sin, yet Jesus would take his place and our place upon the cross. And notice the second observation is that there, there were women who cried over what was happening to him. In verses 27 through 31, we see as Jesus is going down the road, and there was following him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. The words mourning and lamenting have to do with the fact that these women came out because they knew that these, these sons of theirs, these sons of Israel, were going to their death. No one came back from the crucifixion. And so they went out and they mourned them. They lamented, lament the book of Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know, they were lamenting him. They were lamenting what was going on. They were mourning what was happening. And Jesus, hearing them mourn and weep for him, turned to them and said two things, basically. One was prophetic and the other was a proverb. He says, but Jesus, which is a contrast, indicating that, you know what, instead of mourning and weeping for me, he says, Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep what? For yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And so his point was, is that, remember, he had warned the nation of Israel because they had rejected him as Savior, that it wouldn't be long bef before uh, Jerusalem would be destroyed and every stone of the temple would be, you know, basically flipped upside down and just totally destroyed and obliviated. And he's saying it, you know what, don't mourn for me, weep for yourselves, because you rejected me, and with rejection comes judgment. And there's a day coming soon where people are going to say, hey, you know what? Best thing that ever happened to you, lady, was that you never had a baby. And for a Jewish woman to be barren was the greatest, you know, it was, it was the greatest reproach of all, that she couldn't have children. 
And so Jesus said, this is how bad this judgment is going to be. It's going to be better that you never had a child and you never nursed a child because this judgment is going to be so terrifying and so, so just gruesome that you're going to wish that the stones from the hills would fall on you and kill you. He said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And you know what? The same is true today. Jesus says to all who reject him, you know what? Don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because if you don't trust in Christ, God's judgment and wrath is upon you. Now the proverb was, he said, hey, notice, if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? And what he was saying very simply is this. Literally, it meant, if they do this to an innocent man, what will be the fate of the guilty? Or if God allows this to happen to his perfect, innocent Savior, what will become of those who are guilty of making it happen, specifically the nation of Israel? He said, now that's something you ought to cry about. Think about it. See, and the response is that they should have repented when they realized who he was. And we, and we know from history, and I've talked about it in a couple other messages, but we know from history that in 70 AD, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, that, that men, and talk about men not being men, but men in Jerusalem would kill their own wives and children and then eat their flesh in order to try to survive. You talk about sin nature becoming very graphic. It was the survival of the fittest. And Jesus knew it and saw it coming and said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And so women cried, literally they wailed because they knew that Jesus was going to die. We see the two criminals were crucified with him in verses 32 and 33. We read, and two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, uh, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And so in this particular passage, we see these two criminals were crucified with him. And this action was a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, people say to me, you say, well, Chuck, why, why do you believe the Bible? You know, one of the most convincing uh, proofs of the uh, divine origin of Scripture is the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, one of the most compelling arguments is I was studying, you know, is this true or not true, uh, is the fulfillment of prophecy. There are 34 different prophecies that are fulfilled in this one afternoon in the life of Jesus when he died on the cross that day. And when you read through it, you begin to realize some of these were written 800 years earlier. And they were fulfilled to the very degree in which we have in Scripture. And you read this and go, wow, you know what? I mean, this is powerful, compelling evidence as to the divine origin of Scripture. That God is in total control of everything. We're told that these men who were guilty before God and men uh, were led out with Jesus their trials had taken place on the same court docket, so to speak. No doubt they had witnessed the trial of Christ. Uh, they'd heard that he wasn't guilty, yet they find themselves who were guilty being executed with him. They saw Barabbas set free, and no doubt their own hopes were shattered at that point because there was a chance that maybe one of them would be set free. And you'd think that if anyone could have hit rock bottom, it would have been these guys. And they were crucified in this place called the skull. And basically, it was a place where the Jews used to stone people. And it really wasn't on a hillside. It was along a main highway. And what they would do is they would take prisoners and, and those who were there going to execute. And they would march them up and down all the alleys and the streets so that if anybody ever had a stupid idea to do something that these people did, it would be a tremendous deterrent to them. Oh, you're thinking about robbing somebody? Well, here's what happens to robbers. Oh, you're thinking about murdering somebody? here's what happens to murderers oh you're thinking about doing this well here's what happens and they would march them up and down the streets and take them to a place where everybody would see what would happen and you know what and it was a deterrent to crime you know and, if, and, and for those who argue that you know such things aren't a deterrent to other people one thing that I can argue with with great passion is this it certainly is a deterrent to the person being executed to never commit another crime again. 
And so, you know, I don't want to get hung up on any of this stuff, but that was what they did, and that was the reason behind it. It was to teach their culture, society, a lesson. And so, you know, people get hung up on, well, was it on a hill? Was it a skull? Where was it crucified? And, and, And I think sometimes how tragic it is that so many of us turn objects into our focus of worship. You know, we turn, you know, a cross or a crucifix or a shroud or an empty tomb or some place. And you know what? And God doesn't want us to focus on those things. He wants us to focus on a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. We don't get hung up on a cross. We don't get hung up on a crucifix. We don't get hung up on where they bury Jesus and where the empty tomb is and whether the shroud of Turin is really the shroud that they wrapped him in. You know what? None of those things make any difference to any of us because all that mattered is, is Jesus, God in human flesh, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, who gave his life for us on the cross, was a Jesus who was resurrected from the dead and is a Jesus who you have put your faith and trust in because nothing else and no one else can save us from the wrath of God, period. And so it was providential that Jesus was crucified between these two thieves for this gave both of them equal access to the Savior. Both could read Pilate's subscription, superscription upon his, his cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Both could watch him as he graciously gave his life for the sins of the world. And both of them would be held accountable by God to come to a conclusion. Number four, notice that there were people who were watching all these things, considering them, and they didn't respond in verse 35. In verse 35, we read, it says, And you know what? And they stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, as this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, and this too is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. In Psalm 22, verse 17, it says that they sneered at him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. And these were many of the same people who had just a few days ago proclaimed Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, a few days later, crucify him. Now, their argument was very valid, and that's this. Think about what they said. You have saved other people. Why can't you save yourself? That's a good point. We've seen you heal people of various diseases. We've seen you calm the storm. We've seen you raise people from the dead. So if you really are who you claim to be, and here's what it comes down to, this doesn't make any sense to us because you should be able to save yourself. And their logic is impeccable. And their reasoning is correct. If it was Jesus' desire to avoid the cross and save himself, no one could have nailed him to a cross. But it wasn't his desire to avoid the cross. It was his desire to do the will of his Father. And it was the desire of God, the predetermined plan of God and by the foreknowledge of God that Jesus came into this world to die upon the cross. Nobody forced Jesus to the cross. Nobody kept him there against his will. He gave his life as a substitute for you and me voluntarily and their logic is impeccable. You are right. You couldn't do this to him unless he allowed you to. Do you understand that? How could you kill somebody who raised people from the dead? How can you arrest somebody who said in the garden, hey, you know what, I could call 12 legions of angels to my side and it wouldn't have been necessary because Jesus didn't need the help. But what he was saying to them was, look, if you think I need help, I could call to my father who would send 12 legions of angels and there's nothing any human being would ever be able to do. But... I came willingly, I came obediently, I came voluntarily, and I offered my life in exchange for you. If you would just believe that and trust in me, you will be forgiven of your sins by God. See, 
they heard all of this and they still didn't respond. And you know what? They're no different than people today who hear the same thing. You're not perfect. Oh, I know I'm not perfect. Okay, well, what do you think that means? Okay, well, I'll concede that, you know, I'm a sinner based on the definition that you gave. You know, I haven't always loved God with all my heart, mind, and soul. I have lied. I have cheated. I have stolen. I have coveted my neighbor's goods or my neighbor's wife or other things that I've seen. Yeah, if that's God's standard, I fall short of that. And you know what? Yeah, I'm guilty. But you know what? So what? What do you mean, so what? If you're guilty, you'll be held accountable for your guilt, for your sin, for your offenses against God. And all God's saying is, is that he will take that offense upon himself if you will just trust and believe in him. But they hear all of this, they consider it, okay, so God loves me anyway. Yes, he does. Jesus died on the cross in my place. Yes, he did. Jesus rose again from the dead. He's alive today. Yes, he is. And he's proven that he is who he claims to be, the only savior of the world. So if I put my faith and trust in him, God will forgive me of my sins. That's what the Bible teaches. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away, all things become new. And this is the witness that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, bottom line is, yes, that's exactly the message. And they consider these things, and you know what they do? Nothing. They do nothing with it. They don't act upon it. They don't internalize it. They don't make it personal. They say, oh, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that with me. But you know what? I got stuff to do today. And they move on. And that's exactly what we see happening here. There are people who are sneering at the cross, and they don't even see the contradiction in their own logic. Yeah, you know what? If we really stop to think about this, he could save himself. But he's choosing not to. Why? And they would go to Scripture and they would see that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. This is all God's plan to reconcile man to himself. See, they consider these things, but they did nothing with it. Think about this. Jesus does save. He saved others. Why won't he save himself? Do you know why? Because if he saved himself, he couldn't save others. If he came down off the cross, he wouldn't be the savior. He did what God ordained for him to do. Now, the rulers and the soldiers, they criticized him, which is, again, part of everything the Bible warned what would happen. It says that, the, and they were sneering at him, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was this inscription that Pilate had put there, this is the king of the Jews. And so we see that this battle is going on, and we know that uh, this has taken place. And now we get down to one of the criminals challenged him to prove his claim. And I want you to notice that in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There seems to be a consistent theme that's taken place here. The rulers are saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself, you've saved others. The thief now that's hanging on the cross next to him is saying, hey, if you really are who you claim to be, then save yourself and save us. Basically, he was saying, save me. And, and uh, as we go through this, we see that, you know, this man, excuse me, represents all those who refuse to believe in Jesus until he does what they want him to do. These are the people that we meet in life who basically say, you know what, if God does exist, he exists to serve me, and if he does for me what I want, then maybe I'll believe in him. These are people who say, God, if you give me this promotion at work, then I'll believe in you. If you heal me of my disease, I'll believe in you. If you give me this raise, I'll believe in you. 
if you save my kids from the mess that they're in, not spiritual sense, drugs, alcohol, stupid decisions, then I'll believe in you. It's kind of like, you know, God, if you do for me what I want you to do for me, then I'll believe in you. And let me just tell you something. If God exists to serve you, don't believe in him because that's not God. We exist to serve him. We exist because he gives us our very lives. We exist because he took dirt one day and he breathed into it the breath of life and man became man. We exist, as Paul said, as a potter who doesn't, as as the pot and the clay who has no right telling the potter what to do. We exist because of him. See, this thief had it all wrong. Jesus didn't have anything to prove to that man. He didn't have anything to prove. He didn't need to save himself. He wasn't guilty. If he had gotten down off the cross, he wouldn't have been the savior. And the bottom line is, is that Jesus endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And this guy didn't get it. And in closing, let me introduce you to a guy who did. One of the criminals committed his life and his future to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse 40 through 43, it says, but the other, speaking of the other criminal, and when it says but, there's a contrast, and he's saying that the other of a different kind. Now, understand something. They were both very similar in that both of them were guilty of murder and robbery. So from an external standpoint, they were quite similar. They were being executed because of their crimes, because of their sin. But it says that, but the other one, and it specifically refers to the other one of a different kind. What made this thief different from this thief? And the Bible tells us that this thief had a broken and contrite heart. This thief started off the day with his buddy hurling abuses, according to Matthew's account, at Jesus. That same guy said, yeah, if you're really the Christ, if you're really the Savior, then get off the cross and save yourself and save us. And he hurled abuse at him. But something happened in the heart of this man that didn't happen in the heart of the other man. And you know what it was? God chipped away at his hard heart. This man reflected on the, on the trial. This man reflected on the words of Pilate. I find no fault in him. He reflected on the words of Pilate that said, Herod finds no fault in him. He reflected upon everything that he saw and how when he was abused and how he was insulted, Jesus didn't hurl insults in return. As he was hanging on the cross, he, he noticed a certain dignity about Jesus that wasn't true of anybody else that had ever been crucified. He heard Jesus say to the soldiers who were, you know, they were cast in lots for his clothes, you know, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. There was something about Jesus that was so compelling to this man's heart that he began to see him for who he really is. And there's no doubt in my mind that this man through this process was asking God, Is this man really your savior? Because we can't identify Jesus as the savior unless God the Father reveals him to us. We know that from Matthew 16 and when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, my father in heaven revealed this to you, not not flesh and blood. And he had a broken heart. And he started to recognize his own guilt. He acknowledged his guilt and he accepted his punishment. Notice what he said. He rebuked this other thief and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Wait a minute, don't you get it? This man is innocent. Notice, we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. He's saying, 
You know what? We're guilty as charged. You can't with a clear conscience before man or God say you didn't do what you did that got you here. And I recognize the same thing. I'm guilty as charged. But this man has done nothing wrong. And yet he hangs here with us. And he came to believe that he was who he claimed to be. Think of the, the faith that it took to trust in a dying Savior. And that faith only can come from God. Because it didn't make sense otherwise. Just like it didn't make sense to the rulers that, well, gee, you know, Jesus, why can't you save yourself? You saved everybody else. We don't understand. They couldn't understand how a thief could put his trust and faith in a dying Savior who would not leave that day until he died and his body was carried away. And I want you to notice what he said. He said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He didn't say, remember my works. Remember I was baptized. Remember I joined that cool church that was up on a hill in the canyon that was really pretty. (laughs) You know, he didn't say, remember how much money I gave to spread the gospel. He didn't say, remember I did all these things in your name. You know what he said? He said, remember me. Remember me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember me. And in doing so, I want you to notice the gospel. He says, first and foremost, I'm guilty as charged. I'm a sinner. I deserve what's happening to me. And my only hope is in you. And I put all my faith and all my hope and all my trust and I commit my life and I commit the life that's to come in you. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And I want you to notice in closing the words of our Savior. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, and in our vernacular would say this, I'm telling you the truth. You can bank on this. This is a trustworthy statement. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Today. He knew that man was dying today. But he also knew that man was forgiven at that moment in time where that broken and contrite heart came to Jesus on a cross and said, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I trust in you and you alone, your death on the cross and the power of your resurrection. Why did Jesus say, today you will be with me in paradise? Because it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. This man never got down off the cross to do anything to further the kingdom of God. But his profession of faith, his confession that Jesus is Lord from that cross speaks through all eternity. He never was baptized. He never went through any church sacramental system. He never read through the Bible in a year. He never gave a penny. He never did anything other than say, Lord, remember me. Because you know why? It's all about Jesus. He did it all. See, the beggar said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The blind man said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Zacchaeus received him gladly. This man said, I am guilty. Lord, forgive me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God and the judgment that's to come. The question that I have for you is this. Has he saved you? I know he saved me. And I look forward to that day when I'm absent from this body and I'll be present with the Lord because the promise that he made to that thief is equally true to you and I. And that is that, you know what? You will be with me in paradise. 
and I go and prepare a place for you. And if that wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And since that's so, I go and prepare a place for you that someday I will come for you and you will be with me for all of eternity. Jesus saves. Has he saved you? Father, thank you for the clarity of your word again. We thank you for this one man who had dying faith and received dying grace. God, it is my prayer that anyone who is here or listening to these words that doesn't know whether Jesus has saved them from the wrath and the judgment of God for their sins, that today would be the day that they cry out for forgiveness. Father, forgive me. I am not perfect. I may not have murdered anybody. I may not have violently stolen from anyone. But I have lied. I have cheated. I've stolen. I've coveted the goods of others. I've been envious of their success. I haven't always put you first in my life. In fact, there are many years I never thought anything about you. I didn't always honor my mother and father. And as I go through the list, I realize that I'm guilty, 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 guilty. God, forgive me. And I believe what you say, that you love me and you sent your only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross, that I, if I would just repent, turn from sin and believe in him, that I will be saved from the wrath and the condemnation of God. God, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead and he's alive today and he's seated at the right hand of God, that he hears my broken heart. And I believe that for those who trust in him, I now become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Father, I thank you for how you draw people to yourself, men and women, that you've called us from darkness to light. And I pray that those of us who have come to trust and believe in Jesus as our Savior, that our lives are never the same again, that we live in a manner that's worthy of our calling, that we make a difference for the kingdom of God, that we're not conformed to this world, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that you would use us to draw all men to yourself. And Lord, you would get all the praise and the glory, for we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do the works that you have prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. We thank you that our salvation is not founded upon our works, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection. And we thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.